This is the Hockey News Storytellers with Ian Palmer. Welcome to the Hockey News Storytellers, Episode 2. When you turn on the game, you immediately see the end product as the players and the coaches set to battle. But have you ever paused to wonder about all the players off the ice that help power the machine that produces the game? Who are these players and where did they come from? What are their respective stories? The Hockey News Storytellers will bring you the journeys of these and many other contributors to the world of hockey. Listeners will learn about the challenges, the successes, and constant grind of these players and the lessons that they have learned along their journeys. This episode's guest is Jack Michaels, the radio voice of the Edmonton Oilers. Jack has been the radio voice of the Oilers for 10 plus seasons. Jack's pipes are amongst the very best in the business. His passion radiates as he calls the play-by-play and brings the action from the arena to the listener at home or in the car or wherever they may be. But Jack Michaels, the broadcaster, becomes so much more when you hear and know his story. How did he get to the hallowed press box in Edmonton from his birthplace, Meadville, Pennsylvania? Where were the stops along the way? How did he perfect his game? What are the perks about what are the perks about being the voice of the Oilers? And what advice does Jack have for the future broadcasters out there? Jack Michaels, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ian. That's one hell of an introduction. You know, you should be an agent. Oh, yeah, well, sorry. you know, hey, I, I get to do some of that too. <laughs> Hey, before, Thanks for having me on. Before we, great to have you here. It's uh, looking forward to talking to you. Before we dive into where you came from and your journey, tell us what it's like to call Oilers games in Rogers Arena, uh, and and what it's what the feelings like to be that broadcaster walking in and calling McDavid and Drysital games. Well, I mean it's. You know, it's a privilege being in the NHL, first of all. You know that, Ian. I mean, you forget every once in a while that our business is attending games where the world's best athletes are on display. So that's that's first and foremost. But obviously, I have the privilege of seeing two of the elite of the elite. I mean, I, I don't know how else you can put it. I, you know, it is rare that you have two of the league's, you know, best five players in the world you know, on the same team, you know, and, and we've seen it with Pittsburgh. I think there's an argument to be made that there was probably a year where we saw it in Chicago. Uh, but it is, it is rare and it's, it's a privilege and it's, you know, phenomenal. Uh, the one thing of course, Ian, as you are well aware uh, that differs, you know, where, what the Oilers have accomplished and what those other teams I mentioned have accomplished. And that's right. where Edmonton's trying to get to and, and being part of that from the ground up, I think, is something that hopefully in another four or five years, when the Oilers hit the peak that many are predicting for them, I'll look back and say, wow, 
I remember then and, and I remember how this all got started. And I have not yet been in the press box up in Rogers Arena, but going in. Bring a parka. Pardon me? Bring a parka. It's, I would say, conservatively, I, I, and I'll, I'll translate this, I would say it's about 12 Celsius and maybe about 48 Fahrenheit. So I'm just right. saying, well, rest bring, warm when you come. We'll bring the parka, but, but <laughs> I would imagine when you move from Northlands Coliseum into the new Rogers Arenas, they go Rogers Center or Rogers Arena? Rogers Place. Rogers Place. Yeah. That must have been like, you probably wanted to sleep there. <laughs> you know what? It was a, it was a tremendous upgrade, uh, you know, aesthetically, you know, obviously all the bells and whistles. I mean, Ian, you have been in the National Hockey League long enough. You, you've seen the transition probably from, I would think almost all of them have turned over in your, yes. in your lifetime in the NHL. So you've seen it come full circle. But I will say and Saddle Dome. Saddle Dome. Yeah, right. Saddle Dome. Saddle Dome and I mean even Madison Square Garden is is completely different from when you first went to the garden. Right. And I guess the other exception would be the Nassau Coliseum, um, which which actually is still a favorite of mine. And what I was getting at, Ian, I think you'd agree with me. First time I went into Northlands, and, and I'm sure you even you thought this the first time you went in there. You can't help but think, holy cow. I mean, the, the, an entire chapter, maybe two, of the National Hockey League was, was written in that building. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, right. granted, by the end, it, it, it had outlived its lifestyle. Right. But you're still in the presence. You know, for you, it would have been the Gardens. It, right. it would have been the Montreal Forum. For Western Canada, it was Northlands. It yeah. was that frozen-over facility in April every playoff year that meant this is all of a sudden the centerpiece of the NHL. So the reason I ask that is when you're calling a game from Rogers Place and you got McDavid or Drysaddle streaking through the neutral zone, you stop on a dime and now take us back to your roots in Meadville, Pennsylvania, and then throughout Ithaca College and where it all started and what turned you on to broadcast? What in high school, like you know, you athlete, and then what? Like, okay, you know, everybody dreams of being a broadcaster if you love sport. But how did it start for you? Well, I mean, first off, and and I think you can also you and I have have some similarities in the sense that we're from the eastern part of North America. So I, I don't know whether it's slightly different when you're across the border, but for someone growing up in Western Pennsylvania at the time, I mean, when I was nine or 10 years old, Edmonton might as well have been Saturn. I mean, because <laughs> you're, you're, and, and you can, again, empathize with this. You're, you're an East coast guy. And, and of course, Pennsylvania isn't really East coast, but you're an Eastern time zone guy. Anything West of Cleveland, again, it might as well be, you know, on another planet. So uh, for me, and then, you know, again, this is where some similarities between you and I come in is, you know, at some point in high school, you realize, you know what, uh, I was a pretty good athlete when I was 11 or 12, but I'm hitting the ceiling here. Right. And, uh, you know, kind of like George Costanza, if it's not about sports, and especially at that time, 
I have trouble concentrating. So how do I, how do I combine my love of sports with a professional career? It, it's funny. When I was a little kid, one of the ways my dad, I mean, they didn't have the programs they did now. The schools weren't necessarily entrusted with teaching your child to read. My parents taught me to read. And one of the ways my dad taught me to read was through his love of the sports pages and the box scores and things right. like that. And I understood all that by the time I was five or six, but he's an English professor. And he was like, I was hoping you'd move from, you know, the box scores to Thoreau or, you know, Scott <laughs> Gerald. He goes, you never made that jump. You just stayed in sports. And, and I did, I, I stayed in sports. I, I recognized by my probably junior high school, grade 11 for our Canadian viewers, uh, that, you know, I was a guy that, that, that wasn't going to go anywhere as an athlete. So how do I stick in sports? And, and broadcasting made the most sense to me. I had always paid attention to broadcasters uh, in a wide variety of sports, not just hockey, but horse racing and boxing. And I chose a school, Ithaca College, which you alluded to, that had one of the top broadcasting schools in the country. Not, not the top and not maybe – with some of the more glamorous reputations. I was accepted in the Newhouse School of Communications. Right. Uh, unlike you, Ian, you were out of my league. I didn't even bother applying to, to Penn, although I, <laughs> I might have the grades, who knows? But, you know, for, for me, I, the other thing is there was a girl that was a year ahead of me. Okay. She wanted to be Jane Pauley. She went to Ithaca. And when I right. did my tour of schools, I stopped there. This was not a girl I was dating, but – I stopped in Ithaca, had a better time that weekend than I did when I went to Syracuse and some of these other schools. The other one I came really close to going to was uh, Miami of Florida. At that time, you know, being a guy who loves sports, the Hurricanes were right. absolutely kings of college football and, and getting, out of the, getting out of the Western Pennsylvania's winners. But instead I went to Finger Lakes and, and got more than my fair share of snow. But I was on the air. That was the key. And I got the reps early. And I was on the air my first week freshman year of college. So and, you're, at uh, Ithaca, you're at Ithaca College. Yeah. And, like, did, when you get there, when you say on the air, on the air doing um, – reading the sports news? Or were you right in calling games at their school where they were Division three? Like, how did you like? How did you get on the air? Well, we auditioned. Everyone who wanted to, you know, have a sports cast audition, and there were two stations. There was a there was a station that was broadcast from campus, but it was a you know it was a legitimate AM station that shot out all over Ithaca. It was uh, I believe a twenty thousand watt station, um, and then there was more of the traditional campus only radio station. And they always, it was tradition at the time at Ithaca College, they had a Sunday morning sportscast on the bigger station. But it was 6, 7, and 8 a.m. Right. And theoretically, that was the elite sportscast. And I auditioned, was lucky enough to get that, or so I thought until I had to get up. And we all remember what that was like, 18 years old, being asked to get up at 5.30 in the morning. I can right. tell you I was the world's worst paper boy, like ever, ever, without a doubt. So that was a drag, getting up early. But I did. I was able to, you know, read three minutes of sports. And then from there, you know, same thing. You just signed up for anything. 
the football spots were all taken up. A lot of the college basketball spots were taken up. So my first year of college, I did a lot of things like lacrosse and soccer, stuff I had no interest in per, right. per se, but it got me on the air and it got me reps. And that's the biggest thing. And I know we'll talk about this later in your show, but that's the biggest thing I'd say for anyone looking to get in this field and, and a lot of other fields, quite frankly, is find a way to get the reps, to get practice. Because I can tell you by my second semester freshman year, I would have laughed at the first year, first semester freshman year. By my you know, third or fourth year of college, I would have laughed at anything I was doing. You, you improve so much in your first, let's say, 500 on-air appearances. That is the time where you will improve the most, more than any point of your career. And trust me, I feel like I'm a better broadcaster today than I was when I broke into the NHL or I broke into pro hockey. But I don't think I've improved as much as I did in those four years ago. Good points. Good points. Uh, and a, a bit of an aside, I can tell you that we have also in common that when I, circa 1984 at the University of Western Ontario, 84, 85, I did CHRW, I believe it was 94.7 in London, Ontario. I was a, a broadcast news guy, sports, only sports. And I covered the Western Mustangs football and hockey teams and um, was going down that route before law school called. So um, I know where you were in Ithaca. Sometimes I wonder where it would have taken me, but good on you. Um, so you go in Ithaca, you get your reps, and then you go, did you intern at HBO? I did. I did an internship at HBO in the summer of 1994, which was just a fantastic time to be an intern because, as you'll remember, that was the year both the Knicks and the Rangers went all the way to the final right. in, their, in their respective sports. So I had access to the best tickets in the world at the best possible time plus just a phenomenal experience i did research and and you know a lot of stuff like logging video but also you know editing feature ideas for wimbledon for the boxing shows i got to attend a few boxing you know as a statistician uh got to attend a few boxing events uh, got to work with a guy by the name of David Harmon, who was for years the executive producer of, remember, Inside the NFL when it was in its glory? That uh -huh. was, you know, Chris Collinsworth was the uh, was on there with Len Dawson and Nick Bonacani. It was a, it was a right. big show. You're probably familiar with it. And, and so it was a great experience. And you got to meet a, a lot of, you know, big wigs and, and kind of, again, uh, pick their brains a little bit. Guys like, uh, you know, Ross Greenberg and Rick Bernstein, who who basically are are some of the reasons why HBO is is in the direction it is there. I was there. I was there when in meetings when they said, you know, we we got to be thinking bigger and thinking about doing our own shows and our own movies right. and stuff like that. I mean, I was there for some of those discussions. And then all of a sudden, five or six years later, you know, HBO was, what was it? It's not TV, it's HBO. And, and they eventually got to that place. I was there when they were still trying to wrap their heads around it. So, so you, you graduate Ithaca, you had done some hockey there. You did a little bit of the Cornell games is my understanding. You know, summer or after you graduate, what are you doing next? 
Uh, well, I'm thinking I'm going straight to ESPN like everyone else. You know, I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to be making 80 grand a year. No problem. And uh, a long summer of, of rejection followed. Right. And I mean, I have, I have stacks of letters. Uh, I'm looking around my office. I, I have a shoebox somewhere of right. rejection letters. Stacks okay. of and so then, so then how do you how do you get into you crawl that? into your hometown radio station is what you do Ian, and beg for a job basically so you i start... crawled crawled in there and i what i did was i took a i i got a job uh doing a morning news talk show they had kind of a guy you know a guy as old as we are now but they wanted some youth in there and so my, my proposal was, all right, well, I'll do the morning news talk, but you got to give me an opportunity to do sports. So uh, I did the morning news show in, a, in return for the opportunity to do play-by-play for high school hockey, okay. small college football, basketball, and baseball, Allegheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania, my hometown. And I still remember it was 75 bucks for play-by-play, and then $25 if I was just, you know, filing reports from, like, a high school basketball game or a high school football game on the old box phone. Remember the box phone? Yeah, oh, of course. About that bit? Yeah. So, so that, was, that was my gig. And I was – I think I, I turned down an offer to do local sports in Wheeling, West Virginia. I couldn't bring myself to do it for, I think, fourteen grand. And I was able to bleed 16.5 out of my hometown radio station. Okay. Okay. So then uh, Jock Michaels is making a name in Meadville. And <laughs> what, um, what, what was there a county fair that you called some races? Oh, or- yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Crawford County Fair. Now, Crawford County, I, I, you and I both are well aware of a former Miss Crawford County, Sharon Stone. Ah, Jared okay. Stone was Miss Crawford County in 1976. So she is from humble beginnings like yours truly, although she's made a little bit farther up the food chain. But uh, Crawford County had a fair like, like most small towns across the mid-Atlantic states. There's all kinds of county fairs. You know the deal, 4-H. I mean, the farmers bring their pigs out. Uh, and then you got the, mid, you know, the, the midway some of them are bigger than others, but there's some rides and stuff like that. So this is what we're talking about, a, a yeah. county-type fair. And I, one of my first assignments for the radio station, I remember being told about, hey, hey, Jack, can you do the ostrich handicap? <laughs> and I, I, I was I, – I mean, I did blink briefly, but, of course, I'm three months on the job, so I was like, yeah, sure. And then later I asked one of my coworkers – what's the ostrich handicap? And they're like, I don't know. I've heard about it. It hasn't, this is the first time we're doing it, but it could be interesting. And what happened was, is in the grandstand, you know, they had a demo derby. Yeah. They even had some, I think they had some, uh, what's the type of horse racing where you got the wagon? Is that equestrian? Well, no. That's uh, equestrian. Chuck wagon or something? Oh, you know, the with the wheel, the, the the, it's not it's not uh, horse racing, but it, they 
you know, they're the, the guys riding on and no, like in chuck this. wagon races. No. Yeah, I, maybe Canadians call them chuck wagon. If I think of it, I'll t- I'll tell you what. Artist racing. Yeah, artist racing. Artist racing. Uh, thank God our producer Steve came. <laughs> artist racing. Yeah, I don't know why I couldn't think of it. So we had stuff like that. We had the cinder track. I mean, it, it was old school. But what they did for the ostrich handicap was they had, they brought in two ostriches. Don't ask me where they, I got there, and I was like, oh my god, this is four years of college, eighty grand tuition at the <laughs> Mom time. Mom must have been really proud, eh? Oh yeah, my, and my parents are in the stands. And what they had done is they set up an ostrich kind of out on the back stretch of the track, and his objective was to go all the way around. Then they set up another ostrich about 200 yards kind of, you know, at that first turn, and that's where he's starting. And I'm like, all right, I understand the ostrich, but what's the handicap? Well, the handicap was the late, great Keith Allen Austin, who was our news guy. He would come in and read the news at the top of the bottom of the hour. And he was, I mean, I love Keith, but he was a biscuit shy of, I don't know, 450? I mean, he was (laughs) So they strapped Keith to this poor ostrich on the first turn. And that was... What do you mean strapped him? Like sitting on it? Like, no. Oh, yeah. Sitting perched on it. I don't know how they... I don't know. Like, to this day, I'm up at the grandstand. So I I didn't see the setup. But all I know is when they fired that pistol, the ostrich on the backstretch took off at a zillion miles an hour. The ostrich with Keith kind of like remember Glass Joe. Are ostriches that strong? Remember how Glass Joe would do one of these? <laughs> That's what this the ostrich kind of did one of these, and then boom! Like I mean, and all I saw was dust because I mean those those ostriches those are big birds. Like, right. So we hit, and this cloud of dust, and we don't know whether. Keith is dead, or the officer <laughs> is dead, or both are dead. Luckily, no one hurt. Otherwise, I'm sure. I mean, it was just an absolute catastrophe. All right. Uh, but All the right. only good thing is, I'm happy to report no one was hurt, and my career uh, somehow survived. Apparently, uh, producer Steve Ellis is a big fan of ostrich ra- ostrich racing. Well, I'm just glad he thought of harness racing. And yeah. Obviously, he got me up too early out here in Western Canada. I can't believe I couldn't think of harness racing. Here's Thanks. one for you guys. Here's one for you guys. Have you guys either – it's another unusual sport, but have you guys ever watched unicycle hockey? Have not. No. Okay, no, so it, they, they play with a flaming ball that they, they set on fire and they just throw it out and they play on, on unicycles. And that's my all-time absolute favorite That sounds a little bit like this game my son is currently playing on the Xbox, that Rocket League with the flaming soccer ball and you're a car and you're kicking the ball with a car. Anyways. All they need to do is bring back the Fox hockey puck. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Exactly. The exploding puck. So in any event, I was able to negotiate through that. And um, really, in, I, I got a bit of a break, or, or at least a point in the right direction. And uh, in the, well, I guess it would have been, this would have been the spring of 1999. Um, Pennsylvania, it's high school hockey playoffs, east and west, no big surprise. East, 
final was in Philadelphia Spectrum. West final was in Pittsburgh's Igloo. And the way they did it is they play the high school games at 2 o'clock, and then the Pens and Flyers would play at 7. And I did a high school game at 2 o'clock that, wouldn't you know, it goes into double overtime. And when I finished up, I had two guys come up to me, Mike Lang, who was at that time the television player by the voice of the Penguins. He's gone from radio to TV back to radio. And Matt McConnell, whom you've seen in a wide variety of cities, cities during your years covering the league. I think he went Pittsburgh, Anaheim, Minnesota, Atlanta, and now you know him, of course, as the voice of the Arizona Coyotes. They both came up to me after the game and said, you know what, you, you do a great job. Like, what, what do you do for a living? I mean, they rightfully assumed that I wasn't making much of a living. Um, but, you know, I was like, well, I'm, you know, I do, I do college football and basketball and, th- and then this kind of on the side. They're like, they both were the same voice, said, Jack, anyone can call football and basketball, which I don't think is necessarily true. I don't want right. to demean, diminish those announcers. But they said fewer people can do hockey. It's a tough game to call. You do a hell of a job. If I were you, I'd, I'd get my name out there in the hockey circles. I had never applied for a professional hockey job up until then. So and then I sent my stuff out. So then you go west, young man. You yes. go west. Yeah, I, I got my first west. job in Colorado Springs. And, Ian, I, I thought that was the west. And you probably did, too, when when you were in your teens or whatever. I, I If you had asked me at that time, I would have said, oh, Colorado, it's probably, what, a six-hour drive from L.A.? I didn't know. So I'm driving west. And, you know, it's if you drive that way, and this is probably true in, in Canada, too. It's flat. I mean, you could see your dog running away for 10 miles. Right. And, and when we got into Colorado, I said to my, at the time, girlfriend, future wife, Emily, I said, if I don't see a mountain in the next couple hours, we're turning around and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm calling an audible because this is not what I signed up for. Because we wanted, you know, we were small town kids. We wanted to get out of Dodge. And so sure you- enough, a mountain popped up and all of a sudden the landscape changed. And I had three great years in Colorado Springs, and it was fantastic. As you know, Ian, it's it's one of the two sunniest cities in North America. It's three, I think it's 320 days of right. sunshine a year. Colorado Springs and Denver are, as again, as you know, two of the fittest cities in North America. With Colorado Springs, of course, being the you know the site of the USOC, so you know the training center. So. It was it was a great time in my life. Great time so to get to know pro hockey. So it just wasn't it just wasn't calling games that you were involved in helping to run the team too. Oh yeah, I mean I did everything. I did, you know, I pretty soon early in my career I was doing things like rooming lists and passing out per diem and making sure the buses were there and making sure the flights were there and obviously in the minor leagues flying guys up and flying guys in and coordinating all that with the hotels and making sure our hotels were set up, you know, not only for when we arrived on road trips, but also for the meals inside the hotels. Uh, and you know, so you, you, you were like Mr. Fix-It grinding, you know, and just doing everything to help the team survive and right. you to team learn, services, I would imagine. PR, you name it. And, All those and, in the minors, that's what you do though. And, and Ian, I'm, I'm sure it's not unlike your profession where, 
you know, when you're breaking into the, you know, when you're breaking into your law offices, you're doing everything. You don't have money for assistance and you're, you're making all those calls. And, and that's kind of the same thing in my line of work is you're doing almost everything. The only thing I didn't touch in my, what, 11 years in the minors, the only thing I really didn't touch and didn't have an interest in was merchandise. I had no, I, had, I, I, that's the one thing I, but I did everything else. When I got to Anchorage, Alaska, I was selling nearly a million dollars worth of sponsorships, which, you know, as you can imagine, really enabled me to stay in the game a right. lot longer than some people, some other people that, you know, when you're raising a family, it's, you can't live on 35 grand a year. You know, it's, it, it, you can, but it's harder and harder. So and, when you're in, when you're in, before we shift to Alaska, yeah. when you're in a it's year two, Colorado, yeah. you, you, after a game, you're on a bus, probably going to the next city. Do you ever sit and say to yourself, what, what am I doing? Like, what is going on here? I, I would imagine the, the rinks and the arenas. Well, I've very- got a few for you. I've got a few. Did you know, Ian, I'm one of the few people who could say I've called games in all three rinks in which hockey's ever been played in Phoenix. The old, where the Suns used to play, where the where the IHL Roadrunners used America to play. America West? Eras? No, no. Before that, okay. America West was brand new. When I called a game there for the Roadrunners, uh, a team that was run by Claude Lemieux, who I know you know very well. Uh, Claude actually ran a team that played out of America West right. called the Phoenix Roadrunners in the ECHL. But before that, I was in the West Coast Hockey League affectionately known as the Western Cocktail Hockey League, <laughs> and they played at Arizona Veterans Memorial Coliseum. I'm talking about the building that back in the day, and you would have been a little kid, but I don't know whether you remember the great triple overtime game played between the Suns and the Celtics in okay. Game 5 of the NBA Finals. Gar Hurd with a turnaround yeah. of the buzzer to force a third overtime. Right. That building was home to a – a building called the Phoenix Mustangs and, and a professional hockey team. And after the first period of my first year, it was probably mid-season. You know, Zamboni comes and I'm wrapping up. All right, we'll be back with the second period play-by-play in just a moment. You're listening to Gold Kings Hockey on Hot Talk 1460. <laughs> two minutes into the commercial break, I'm like, uh, you know what? Well, give me another two minutes. The, the Zam is still on the ice. I don't know why. Ten minutes later, uh, you know what's go to news. The Zam is still on the ice. Zam breaks down. I mean, dead center ice. Right. Like nowhere to go. Players are milling around. Uh, you know, no no clue as to what's going on. Oh well, cancel the game. We'll play the next day. And that's what happened. They they somehow dragged it off the ice, brought in some probably a prop. I'm guessing they borrowed one from America West for the next night. Right. And so we were able to get moments the game like in the that, you night. must be phoning back to Colorado to your that oh, yeah. girlfriend or wife saying, what, what are well, we that's doing? What, I mean. what am I doing here? Like, right. wh- where is this going? So you uh, go away year three of Colorado, they pull the plug on you. And August the, the 1st, Ian. August. I, how, how fun was that trying to find a job on August the 1st? I and mean, so your, your wife's a teacher in Colorado and you start milling around looking for a job and Alaska pops up? 
Absolutely. I had two choices. I mean, August 1, well, you're in the player agent business. It's never fun when you got a client still looking for a, a player still looking for a place to play on August the 1st. You can imagine broadcasters, same thing. I'm scrambling. I have two choices. I have Greenville, South Carolina, right. or I have Anchorage, Alaska. And Anchorage had been in the league. They had been on eBay that summer. So I immediately hung up the phone. I'm like, are you kidding? Not a chance. I mean, I knew that it was, right. it was not being run properly, but I also knew there was a devoted fan base. And then the reality of going to Greenville, South Carolina, I was like, you know, nothing against that area of the country or whatever, but I'm not sure there's the passionate hockey fan there. I think there's the fan there that might want to see a brawl. Like I just had preconceived notions and, and there are some great hockey fans in the South. So I don't mean to suggest they're not. Right. But back then my mindset was, I don't know whether I can do it. I, I don't. So you know what? When Anchorage kept persisting, I said, I'm going, I'm going to roll the dice. And I think if we can turn this thing around, the fans will come back. Right. I said, you stay here. I mean, we were married at that. We got married May 26th, probably, you know what it was Ian? I just remember this. I flew up to Alaska on September 11th, 2002, one year anniversary. And don't think that didn't run through my mind as I got on the plane. I'm like, again, what am I doing? Like one year anniversary, I'm flying to start a new job in Alaska. Like what am I leaving behind my new wife, new home, new car. I mean, we had everything. And then all of a sudden I'm out of work. So, but my thought was stay in the game, you know, stay stay on the air. Don't, don't take a year off. I'm not established enough to take a year off at that point. So I went up to Alaska and rolled the dice and we got to work. And so I was, I thought you were going to tell me you hopped in your Pathfinder and started to drive and you ended no, up in a, No, they did pay for a flight. Thank God. They did pay for the flight. So you, have, you end up in Alaska and you relocate and you're there for eight years in Alaska and you saw it all, um, including a championship and meeting our mutual good friend, Scott Gomez. Yeah, Scott Scott came during the 0405 lockout and as you'll recall, I mean he he just wanted to play for his hometown team. It was it was as simple as growing up watching the Aces at that time when he was a little kid, it was a senior team that won a few national championships and at the senior level, but he always dreamed of being an Ace. You know, he wasn't dreaming of necessarily being in the NHL until he got a little bit older. So he wanted to play for the Aces. So he came back, and and actually that was a good experience for me, Ian, in the sense that I was, as you know, as we were talking about, I was a PR guy, and as you can imagine, every city we went into, a lot of requests. Hey, can I talk to Scott? Can I talk to Scott? And I got a little bit of the NHL mentality in, in the sense that, okay, you know, we're going to do this request. We're not going to do, you know, and it was just managing – a big league personality, a big league talent, obviously. And uh, it was good exposure. It was good exposure, I think, uh, for both of us, to be honest with you, because I think Scott kind of, not that he had whatever, but let me just put it this way. I don't think there's any coincidence that Scott's year in the minors was followed by his best year ever in the NHL. I think it rekindled – 
I don't know what, but it definitely gave him a little, like a second, a mid-career jump start. Like, hey, and, you know, wow. I, and I, he I, got the Jack Michaels pixie dust that that gave yeah, him magic. Yeah, I respond. I did. I used to tell him. I was like, you could always score thirty if you shot the puck. And he and he went out and. You scored 33 that year, I believe. Well, we're on the topic of Scott <laughs> Gomez. I would encourage all the listeners to go to Scotty C. Gomez's Instagram. Yeah, he it's is good. Doing some, he is doing some outstanding work yeah. up in Alaska. And now I believe he's on tour, taking his road show on tour. He tells great stories. Uh, great follow on Instagram, Scotty C. Gomez. Yeah, he does a good job. And, and, and Ian, he's smartened up. Now that it's winter, he's relocated to San Diego. So right. I think we can all agree that there's worse places to spend the winter than San Diego, California. Okay, so you call 981 professional hockey games before you get to the NHL. And I guess, like, Along the way, like, it's the constant theme of Jack Michaels is what I'm hearing is reps, getting on the air, you know, putting yourself out there, grinding, picking up other jobs in these organizations, further educating yourself, and you're going in and going and going. And I guess by the time you get to the NHL, you can appreciate what the NHL is all about that much more because you lived it. Um, before we get to the NHL, what was the longest Alaska Ace road trip that you were on? Oh, boy. That's an all-timer. That would have been in the 08-09 season. And we would have substantial road trips. We usually had a road trip of at least 15 or 16 days at one point in the season where we'd hit three or four different cities. So this one year we had one again, it might've been 17 or 18. And what happened, what, what the road trip entailed or what the, what the schedule entailed is our, and it was all based on building availability. I used to go rounds with our home arena in Anchorage and me and the GM would sit there. And, I mean, you talk about, you know, all about conflict. Right. And this was, this was co real conflict. Uh, with me arguing, usually not winning, but sometimes gaining concessions. Well, this one year, the, the guy got me a little bit. I mean, he, he gave us, I think, four weeks off. Last week of February, first three weeks of March, gone. So I sit down with our coach at the beginning of the year, and I'm like, look, we got to find a way to break this up. So we cut off a trip. I think we were playing something like – Oh, he wanted you out on the road for four weeks? Well, we, we didn't have our building for four weeks. Oh, okay. So what? Ha so the problem I had was, all right, I can't ask our team to be gone for 30, 31 days. So I, I figured it out. I was like, well, we can, we can get home from Bakersfield, California on a Saturday night and then not go to Salt Lake City, Utah until Friday. Right. So in other words, it was like a Saturday, Sunday in Utah, and we were finished up. So I was like, here's a cutoff point. Here we can at least go home, regroup, see our families, get unpacked, clean up for a few days, and then freshen up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, get back on the plane Thursday night, and go into Salt Lake. That was the plan. So Saturday comes. 
of course, we bus from Bakersfield to LA. There's not a there's not a flight in Bakersfield that can handle the kind of luggage. I mean, right. we're we're flying commercially, so right. you know the weights Just... and balances you can imagine. Little plan out of Bakersfield wasn't happening. So we bus <laughs> to LA, and of course, LA to Anchorage. There's the odd nonstop, but not many. And I don't know whether there are at the time you're connecting in Seattle for almost everything on Alaska Airlines. That was right. our airline. That was the airline we had to deal with. So we get to Seattle, and the gate agent sees me, brings me over. I got bad news for you. Well, what happening? A volcano blew <laughs> up in Anchorage. I said, I can rebook you for tomorrow. Hope you get out. Right. And, you know, here's vouchers for, you know, the holiday, whatever it was, on the campus of the SeaTac Airport. So I go back to my coach, and I'm like, no guarantee. We, we don't know how much ash. We don't know anything. Right. So he's like, I don't know. And I'm thinking at this point, well, I don't really want to spend the day in – I don't want to spend the week in Salt Lake. So what we decided to do is we flew to Phoenix. Okay. We flew to Phoenix. They, they were like, well, we'll switch your flight from Anchorage to Phoenix nonstop, and then you're on your way. And I was able to – I was able to somehow convince we flew back to Phoenix and spent the week in Phoenix oh, you practicing, but I did it selfishly because I wanted a little sunshine. And I said, look, the boys are not going to be happy if we tell them we're spending a week in Salt Lake City because, as you know, you know, right. the alcohol is not right. flowing. So, so we, we, we flew back to Phoenix. I called the Phoenix team. I said, hey, can I still get the deal at the hotel even though we're not playing you this week? And they said, no problem. So we spent a week in Phoenix. Then we flew to Seattle or Salt Lake City on Thursday night, played our series, got back home on Monday, and that was a 30-day road trip. 30, 30 how, many, how many Subway subs would be consumed oh, on a 30-day road trip? I have, yeah, because we didn't have Jersey Mike's back then. So right. we, didn't have the good, we didn't have the good stuff. It and wasn't so, popular. Had to subway subway oh. all the way. Oh man, Subway and whatever Taco Loco. I mean, we we yeah, we hit every joint you could think of. Just on that trip. It was thirty days. So yes, a volcano blew up. We didn't make it home. All right. Well, so let let let's I guess after nine hundred and thirty one <laughs> or nine. How many? How many? Eight? It was less than a thousand. I always said, Ian. I said, if I ever get to a thousand, I'm shutting her down. And luckily, I stayed in the nine hundreds. Someone tabulated it was nine nineteen. I'll never know. And quite frankly, I don't want to. That I mean, I trust me. I got a ton out of those experiences, but I was ready to move on. So you move on to the Edmonton Oilers, and as we get to the latter part of this podcast, tell us a little bit. Give us what. You must be dying a bit. How long – well, you called games in the bubble, and so uh, – I, I called games at the studio. I wasn't in the bubble. So I was at the studio. I was outside the bubble. That was kind of tough. I mean, that was, that was tough to be a spectator with the whole hockey world in your city, and yet, you know, you can't be part of it. So that was, that was a right. little disappointing, but I get it. You know, we're in the midst of a pandemic, and – you know what? Again, another layer of experience, Ian, where you learn to call a game yep. off a monitor. Okay, so let's let's jet set let's jettison into 
a typical game day. And let's say tomorrow there was a Edmonton Oiler Calgary Flame game in Edmonton. Take us through what game day is like for Jack Michaels to call an Edmonton Oiler Battle of Alberta game. What time do you get up? Do you go to the rink? How do you prepare? Give us, give us a little bit of a, a take on your day. Well, let's go pre-pandemic because that's the easiest thing. Yeah, I don't oh, think yeah, for us, sure. Pre- yeah, I don't think any of us know what's going to no. be coming out of it. Pre-pandemic. I, yeah, pre-pandemic. It's really a, like a split shift, I think, uh, for the casual fan. The, the best way I can describe my work day is a split shift. I get up in the morning. Um, the pre-game skates for both clubs are usually in the neighborhood of 10, 15, 10, 30 for the home team followed by the visiting team at 11.30. So, obviously, depending on where I'm at, but the bottom line is I'm at the rink by 10 because I'm going to watch the opposing team skate if I'm on the road, home team skate if I'm at home. But I'm going to get lines and the lineups, who's in, who's out, who's hurt, who may play, who may not play, starting goalie. I'm going to get all that. And I can observe that from watching both practices. Uh, first goalie off the ice is the guy who's playing. Last goalie off the ice is the guy who's not playing. The last couple of skaters on the ice that are doing the wind sprints with, with uh, the assistant coaches are the healthy scratches. Uh, then I go into the locker room for both clubs after their skates. So 1045-ish for the first one and close to noon for the other one. Talk to players. Uh, record an interview maybe once. The rest of the time I'm talking, and I try to really space out the recorded interviews because you always get better stuff and better nuggets when you're just sitting there having a conversation. Right. Uh, depending on the team, I try to find you know a guy or two with whom I've always had a good rapport. If it's Washington, you can almost guarantee I'm going to T.J. Oshie's stall. If it's Colorado, I'm going to Gabe Landis-Goggs. Uh, you know, guys that don't mind chatting, that, that are tick, Ryan O'Reilly and St. Louis, uh, guys that have a lot to say. Uh, Scott, when he was playing, you know, whether I had a relationship with her, him or not, a lot of, a lot of reporters would go to Scott. Uh, then I'd go to, you know, some of the supporting players, some of the, some of the other guys that maybe I hadn't talked to before, uh, maybe you don't have, you know, a ton of access to that person. Uh, you know, if Ovechkin's in the room, I kind of hover. Uh, but, you know, other guys that, that are, you know, quieter players. Uh, I used to love to go to the, you know, Nikki Backstrom's when everyone was at Ovechkin's locker. I'd, I'd try to strike up a conversation with a John Carlson. When right. everyone's at Patrick Kane's locker, I'd slide in and see if, Duncan Keith was maybe in the mood right. to chat a little bit. Like, right. guys, you don't hear from that often if there's a huge, you know, scrum of people over. I always head the other way. That's, gotcha. that's kind of how I would, quote, unquote, work the room. Talk to both coaches. Uh, my coach, I always got a few separate minutes with, non-recording, but just, hey, right. who, who to look for, what's going on tonight, what concerns you the most, what are you most confident about? Opposing coach, as, I got, as I've gone on in the league, I get more of those one-on-one -on -one conversations. Like, in other words, after the scrum, I might be able to say, hey, you know, if, if he's in a good mood, hey, Torts, can I just ask you a couple questions? And 
usually they're very good about that. Right. Some with the with the stricter media person, some some coaches are on a tighter leash than others, but also if I have a long standing relationship, Jared Bender, I could text anytime I wanted to and okay. he can get back to me. Same with same with my coach. So that's kind of my day is 10 to 1 all preparation. And what I've done beforehand, uh, before I ever get to the rink, night before, is I've already set up the scorebook okay. for that particular right. night, filled with lineups, but also scribbles and notes and everything Beautiful. you could possibly, you know, think of. And then Beautiful. every every team has its own sheet uh, with that line combinations and where they went to school, where they played junior. How many right. times they've been on a world junior team? How many times they play in the Olympics? Uh, if their mom was a professional tennis player, I mean, all that kind of stuff. All that's part of our league. Uh, and I, I'm not joking about that. No, hey, Yoakum, listen. Yoakum Ryan was, uh, his mom was, was Katarina Linquist, who was a top 10 female tennis player. I mean, there's all kinds of things. If you dig, uh, you'll find some great stuff. Ryan Reeves' dad, you probably know this, his dad Willard. CFL champion, Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I believe he was MVP of the Great Cup game that year. All that kind of stuff. Now, how much of this do I use in a game? 3%, 4%. You know, your commission check on a good day, on a good day. Uh, But 96, (laughs) 97%, I don't use. But like any meeting you've ever been to, Ian, and and like anyone – who's ever done anything where they're giving a presentation. And I consider my three hour broadcast a presentation. If there is one thing I have learned in this business, and if there's one thing I can share with younger people in any profession, it is better to have something and not need it than need it and not have it. Whether that's preparation, general knowledge, ability to think on your feet, that's the key for me. I'd rather have it and never use it than need it and not have it at my disposal. Great advice. I didn't put in the work. Outstanding advice. So you get all that, you go home. Do you have a pregame nap like the players do? Or No, I, I usually, what I do, and, and you remember this probably from your years, you, you make a break in the day. You find a way to pick up your kids at school. Right. Uh, you find a way to spend at least an hour or two. I mean, look, no one's feeling sorry for me. I got one of the best jobs in the world. But one of the things in my job is a lot of travel. And during yeah. the hockey season, Sometimes when I'm at home, I'm not really at home. Right. So I try to just, you know what? Chill for an right. hour or two. I get back to the rink at around five o'clock. You Pre-game know, again, meal? Do you t- take the press meal or do you? No, I never eat the press meal. I, I don't want to eat or drink anything too close to the game other than water. Because the last thing, you know, you don't want a sleepy broadcaster. You don't want a broadcaster who's belching out the lineups. None of that. So, so I, I eat before the kids even get home. So I'll try to eat around 2.30. And unfortunately, as you can probably tell, sadly, that catches up with you because you're usually hungry around 10, 10.30. And, well, <laughs> I used to uh, – I used to hide it better than I do these days. You're looking fit and fiddle, by the way. Ian. Yeah, well. You're I'm keeping it re- off pretty well. I'm trying to reverse age, bud. Yeah, well, I, I, I could use whatever system you're using. 
But, yeah, I, I actually I, – I never eat before a game. But I do. I get to the rink, so I'll spend a couple hours with my kids and then off to the rink at 5 for a 7 or a 7.30 face-off, uh, do some review, again, of my, my notes. I'll talk to the other broadcasters usually. Some, some kibitzing, but also some, right. hey, you know what? What's with this guy? Or what? Right. And sometimes you'll get a nugget or two that you can kind of weave in there. And, and um, you know, it's, it's like catching up. And, you know, I do all that other stuff, too. I'll, I'll read the websites and, like, get the articles from the last week. Hey, what's going on? Why is Colorado won five of six? Or why have the Devils lost ten in a row? Or you know, is the coach in trouble? Is the coach up for coach of the year? Is, is right. the GM get all the credit? Is there contract negotiations that's fracturing the team? Whatever it is, uh, you, you try to put yourself I, – I'm not one of those guys, and this is where there's a lot of broadcasters that believe, you know what, your audience is interested in your team, and that's always the focal point. And I'm not quite there. I'm more of the – I have a more of a network mentality, maybe just I want everyone to know everything about everything. Yeah. Like, you know, and I, I'm trust me, I, I don't think if you tune in, you'd think you weren't listening to an Edmonton broadcast. But I also, you know, I want people to be educated. I want people to understand why this is important, why Edmonton beating Chicago on a Tuesday night in January is relevant. Gotcha. So a couple things, we got to wrap it up here in a couple minutes. I have one burning question I have to ask you. So um, I have long had a recurring exam dream, okay, where, you know, you'll wake up in the middle of the night thinking that you've studied for a particular subject and then you haven't, you have your exam and you're like. Let me interrupt you. I can't get to the booth. I, for whatever reason, I can't get to the booth. I get distracted downstairs. The elevator's out of service. Uh, I get, I mean, one, one, one dream I had, I got distracted because I was talking to the head coach too long. <laughs> I can't get to the booth. And the game has started, and I'm not in the booth yet. Absolutely. The- I, that is, yeah, that, that's a stress dream that I think all of us have. The variance is just depending on what we do for a living. Right. So, you, Okay. So next question. Have you ever been calling a game and have forgotten either what teams are playing or like a particular player and it just can't get out? Or do you guys have like backup mechanisms where if you get to that situation, you take the broadcast somewhere else? Or you're, you're so well prepared that you just – it doesn't happen. I, you know what? I, I haven't really had that happen. I, I, to be honest with you, I remember before my first game feeling strangely nervous. Like, and I had done preseason games, and, and we had Battle of Alberta was my first game, as a matter of fact, uh, in October of 2010. And I, I did, I, I suddenly stared at my book five minutes before the air. I was like, what are you nervous for? Like you've right. done this a thousand times. Right. Like you're fine. Yeah. And, and that's, I, that's the last time I can remember, but I, you know, I've, I've done some TV and I remember being nervous before that. And, right. and again, you, you've done it, you've done it a thousand times. Yeah. But 
What gotcha. makes it all worthwhile, Ian, and I think it's important that, I, and I know it wasn't a question on your list, but I, I do want to get to, I want to get to something that was real important to me. And you know what, this, this whole life that I've had, and everyone says, well, what's your favorite game? What's your favorite moment? My favorite moment in my life, probably, outside of my two children being born, is calling my dad and telling him I got the job. Right. That, for me, and if broadcasters are out there or anyone's out there that hasn't gotten to where they want to go yet, they need to find something that would will make it all worth their while and then ask themselves, do I want to pursue it if that happens? And that, for me was the moment I was in Hawaii and I called my dad and I said, dad, I just found out I got the job as a voice of the Edmonton Oilers. That made everything that's happened before or since or any frustration in my professional life worth it. I'll never forget that day. You know, and maybe on that note, cause we could talk for a long time more. That's a great way to wrap this up, you know, and you know, your story of, you know, grinding away from Meadville through the high schools, through the Division three colleges, to Colorado, to Alaska, and now to Edmonton, I, it's all well-deserved. And, you know, I get it. I've, I know how the hockey world is, and good for you. And when you, when you get into a NHL city and you get to a great hotel – Someone like you ought to enjoy every minute of it because of where you came from and how you slugged it out. So good on you. Um, listeners, I can't stress enough. I've spent many hours in my car driving around, um, you know, recruiting athletes, watching hockey games. I had a couple Edmonton Oilers hockey players along the way. And what late night, it's perfect West Coast games get into the Sirius XM, turn Jack Michaels on, radio voice of the Edmonton Oilers, and you'll absolutely love listening to his call of the game. It's outstanding, off the charts. And uh, Jack, thanks for your time today um, and appreciate it. You're far too kind, Ian. And, and again, it's been a privilege getting to know you over the last decade. It's, it's great to get to a league where you get to find another layer of people you have lifelong friendships with. And I want to thank the listeners uh, to listening to us today. We appreciate you with over 2 million dedicated readers. The hockey news is the authoritative source of hockey and number one hockey publication in North America with an ever growing podcast network. The hockey news is there to cover all the major hockey stories around the world. Visit THN dot com slash deal to get the best value on a subscription to the hockey news thank you mm -hmm.